Hey everyone, you're listening to Can You Hear Us Now? Inclusivity in the Media, a podcast dedicated to amplifying the voices of those in marginalized communities who are frequently overlooked in the mainstream media. Each week we discuss new topics in order to promote representation of those who are recurrently silenced or ignored. Our program aims to bring awareness to these issues in order to stimulate inclusivity in the media. Let's get into it. Dr. Deborah Stroman is a professor at UNC Chapel Hill's Gilling School of Public Health specializing in racial equity and health disparities. She served as the first black female coach at UNC for the women's basketball team while getting her graduate degree. Last year, she was chosen as North Carolina's NAACP 2021 Woman of the Year, which recognizes an extraordinary woman who has demonstrated leadership and service and has worked to advance women of color. Marlon Jones has served as a University Equal Opportunity and Inclusion Director and a Title IX Coordinator. Marlon works with young professionals and athletes to help them create a blueprint to advance into a career in sports administration. Additionally, she's the producer and host of View from the Big Chair, where she discusses career skills and the ins and outs of the sports administration industry. Abby Forbes is a graduate transfer from UCLA, where she graduated with a degree in political science. She has a career high ranking of number two in the world in junior singles and number 23 in the world in junior doubles. She won junior Wimbledon doubles in 2019 and made it to the third round of the junior U.S. Open women's singles that same year. Abby, how has your race and gender impacted your journey as a college athlete? This is always an interesting question for me because I feel like everyone, when they ask this question, expects some sort of violent racism that someone has experienced. And I've actually been very fortunate You know, I having gone to UCLA for my undergrad degree, I feel like I was amongst a very diverse group of people. And I think that they were just very socially aware when they were talking to me, you know, just in athlete spaces, whether it be locker room talk or while I was playing. I never faced any violent discrimination, fortunately, but Something that was definitely difficult to navigate was microaggressions, things like, you know, fetishizing Black women, you know, hair or nails or just like walking around, you know, off of the court. I would get questions that, you know, the standard, I guess, Caucasian person would never really get. And I think that that's something that I've lived with my whole life, Um, just always being the stray away from the norm. And I think that it makes me think about things a lot more than um, some of my white friends. And I think that that has impacted the way that I carry myself and also the way I treat other people, because I'm very conscious of how other people are also being talked to other black athletes. But I feel like as a whole, I've had a very good support system that has helped me navigate that because I've related to a lot of other black athletes, both at UCLA and now at UNC, who have been going through similar things. Next, if I could hear from Dr. Stroman about what it was like to be a black female athlete in the late 70s and early 80s at UVA, and if this is similar to Abby's experience. 
Well, there's no doubt during that time period, we didn't have big time athletics. It wasn't commercialized like it is today. I was the first female uh, black scholarship athlete at Virginia and navigating uh, white spaces. Um, it wasn't new to me. I went to historically white institutions my entire life. Uh, I do remember a few things that happened that would make me think of being the only one. I remember my coach, who I'm very close to today, Hall of Fame coach Debbie Ryan, um, making a statement that she didn't need to call over to admissions for me in terms of, uh, as we all know, athletics has various slots that they can use to help, um, you know, field their teams and recruit people. And that was def definitely a, a pinch. I remember on a road trip, those who remember the years of when Denny's restaurant was in trouble for their racist practices against Black customers. I remember a team a trip and not being served and all my white teammates were served. And then eventually, of course, they noticed and they're like, well, you know, Deb, you can have some of mine until your food comes. And uh, eventually it got back to the coach who was at the other end of the table and uh, actions were taken in that regard. I do remember thinking sometimes that calls would go against me uh, because I was the only black person out on the court <laughs> or being the only black person at Virginia, but that could have been my own bias. Uh, but just watching the way certain refs would look at me uh, with certain calls. But of course, you know, being in a family type atmosphere, which was a lot, it's a lot easier. It was a lot easier back then, uh, again, because we didn't have all the commercialization, but being close to the men's basketball players and being close to the football players. So I was able to, um, you know, create those support groups. And so that was the beautiful thing. And overall, and I think this is one of the challenges for historically white institutions today is to create that HBCU atmosphere at the large white schools so that many uh, brown and black students don't feel isolated and feel alone. Marlon, what support needs to be put in place for black female collegiate athletes in terms of Title IX? Title IX has helped all women in terms of participation numbers, but white women have had the vast majority of the positions, whether they were for student athletes, coaches, or administrators. So as Dr. Stroman said, she was the first at UVA when I went to college was just around the same time that she did. So I was a sophomore in college before the NCAA championships for women. So I went to a predominantly black high school and it was very hard for those women to get excited about trying to pursue playing ball in college because there were no scholarship dollars available and many of them needed the scholarship money to be able to go to school. Working as a Title IX coordinator now, and I worked in compliance for 15 years, so I certified all of the teams for competition and still we have a concentration of Black females in basketball and in indoor and outdoor track. The NCAA reported their numbers for the 2020-2021 school year in the New York Times, and the only four sports that have double-digit percentages were basketball with 30, outdoor track and indoor track with 20, volleyball with 11, and Gymnastics comes in at eight, but all of the other sports that the NCAA sponsors 
have percentages mostly 5% and below for Black women. And it goes back to the opportunities for them to be seen on the high school level as potential collegiate prospects. Thank you so much. And with your experience, what support do you think needs to be in place for Black female collegiate athletes, whether that be public policy or institutionally? It is still very hard for many people to dream about things that they cannot see. We are at a point now where you very rarely see women coaching women's sports teams, particularly basketball and track, and even to some extent, volleyball and softball. So if you only see men and white men coaching, it's almost as if it's hard to get the women to buy into the fact that there is a place for them in the industry as a head coach. When you look at the directors of athletics, it is hard to see them as well. And even though the few Black women that we have in those positions are stretched with their time, the colleges and universities have got to find ways to develop some type of formal mentoring, mentorship programs where the collegiate athletes are able to spend some time shadowing coaches. Uh, if they have to do it at a coaching convention, if they have to do it at a conference, if they have to do it when the athletic directors meet in the summer, they have to be able to see that there's a place for them. What do you think Duke should have done following the BYU claims that there was no discrimination against Rachel Richardson? Rachel is on the Duke University women's volleyball team and at a match against Brigham Young University in Utah this September, she was called a racial slur by one of the fans. Although BYU initially banned the fan from attending any more games, they then double backed on their apology and claimed that no discriminatory comments had been made, making 19-year-old Richardson the center of media debate. While Duke claimed that they stood behind Richardson, no further action was made. When somebody says that they have faced that kind of discrimination where A, it's not on camera and B, it's verbal, it becomes a he said, she said. As somebody who has been called a racial slur in the past, no one would believe me unless they knew my character personally. I think that this is a sticky situation because of course there's hierarchy. Um, I'm not exactly sure who said the racial slur to her? I don't know the story enough, but you know, based on assumption, if it was a person who is white, then there is a hierarchy there because everybody is more inclined to believe that, oh, Rachel is exaggerating and she misheard, or the person was saying it in a song. That's the classic these days. And I think that that puts her in a very sticky situation. And I do feel sorry for her 
because she probably did face this discrimination. And it's appalling that people even use those words today. And I think that in reference to what Duke should have done, I think that no matter what, they should have backed their player. They offer this player a scholarship. This person represents them at the national level. I think that you stand behind your player no matter what. And once you make that stance, you don't turn your back on it, even when the media is debating whether or not it happened and whether or not, you know, it's on ESPN and people are saying that she lied or that it didn't happen. I think Duke just needed to make a firm stance and they also needed to put the emphasis on her and her mental health and well-being and how it was compromised on that trip, regardless of what was said. There was clearly some form of discrimination going on, but needed to be taken care of internally by Duke in supporting their student athlete. As a Title IX coordinator, I investigate claims of discrimination, which include racial discrimination, uh, gender discrimination. And because you cannot prove that something happened, because I cannot prove that something is legal discrimination, doesn't mean that there's not an issue. BYU did an internal investigation. The first thing I would have done was hired an external investigator so that it did not appear that I was trying to cover anything up, not saying that they are or they aren't, but there's that appearance that you have when you have a situation that is as volatile as this one and you investigate it yourself and don't hire an outside investigator. In terms of what Duke should do or not do, I read a statement that their vice president, director of athletics made, who is also a black woman, where she affirmed the university's report. I don't know what else Duke could do because it wasn't at Duke and it wasn't something that Duke could investigate themselves. But we have to understand that just because you can't prove something happens doesn't mean that it didn't happen. Yes, I will just want to add that I don't believe Duke should have done anything more. What they did publicly was their truth, as in BYU conducted their research and Duke conducted theirs, and they both could be true. What Richardson heard and who BYU interviewed and what they saw on tape could be true. Uh, it's a very unfortunate incident, but I love the attention and the exposure it brought to what Black athletes can go through. And there are certainly many others that don't get the attention like an elite college athlete. Now, being very close to this in my work, uh, doing race and racism work all across this country, including in the Triangle, including in the ACC, I know what went down at Duke. And so what I will publicly say is that on campus, the senior leaders at Duke could have been more of a public advocate for the voice of Black athletes on their campus. I believe this story is about race and how Black people have to constantly prove that we're not criminals. So I think in terms of going back and forth with BYU or any other uh, governing body for, for college athletics, uh, Duke did their part. What would you want to tell young African-American female athletes wanting to pursue a college or professional career in sports? First, do consider the Divine Nine. 
as in fraternities and sororities that are birthed by Black students, but in particular the four sororities. There are a number of Black athlete collective movements that are taking place at Virginia where I played. There's BOSS, which is Black student athletes offering service and support. At Duke, we have the United Black Athletes. So these organizations are forming. Uh, I'm a part of the leadership of Advancement of Blacks in Sports, which is a national organization of athletes, coaches, administrators, uh, friends of the sport industry uh, that want to lift up the positive things and celebrate uh, what things are going well and then call out things that are causing harm. Um, You know, what I say to my students at UNC Uh, I tell them it's not what you know, it's not who you know, but who knows you on a favorable basis. And so you need exposure. Uh, For those in the media space, the National Association of Black Journalists has a sports division, which I'm a part of. Uh, That's a good place to start and get great connections. And the conferences are unbelievable. Um, And then lastly, I'll say, you know, as an academic, read and write. The best writers and speakers are avid readers really just lean on the people who come who came before you because while their experience wasn't the same they did learn from a lot of life lessons and i think it's very valuable to have resources like marlin and like deborah here in the carolina family and i think that just having them in general just realizing you know that not a whole lot of people have connections like that. And just utilizing what we have here on campus, I think is number one. But on a more personal note, just relating to the student athlete, I think that I would advise for them to do what seems fun to you. Don't feel confined to any one particular thing and realize that you are always allowed to change your mind. If in 10 years you decide you don't want to be a student or a a professional athlete anymore and you want to go back to school and become a doctor go back to school and become a doctor I remember when I was going into school I was always told that by my parents at least do what you would like to do as far as academics go and so I wanted to go into school doing chemistry but when I got to UCLA I was completely discouraged by my coaches um, from doing anything in the health sciences because they said that I could not be an athlete and do that at the same time. And part of me looking back feels like they didn't have faith in my academic abilities, which could have been racially tied, it could have not been, but I couldn't help but notice that my white teammates did not face that same comment. You know, the only person on the team at the time who got that comment was me and I was the only black person on the team at that time or coming into school. So after going through that experience, I would just totally advise everyone just do whatever makes you happy. And you also don't know what's going to make you happy in the long run, but that should not shy you away from trying. You should always do what is in front of you. And then if it doesn't work out, choose something else. Life is too short to exclude yourself from opportunities. The opportunity cost is way too big if you just keep yourself in one little bubble, whether that's one little medicine bubble or one little law bubble or one little professional athlete bubble. Use all the resources that you have on campus because you never know, a light bulb could come on in your head and somebody could say something that sparks something 
And if you didn't enter that room, have that coffee chat, you would not have received the valuable information that could transform the rest of your life. This episode of the Can You Hear Us Now podcast was produced as part of the class project for Mijo 441, Diversity and Communication at the Hussman School of Journalism and Media at UNC Chapel Hill. This episode was produced by Macy Brown, Ronick Gruel, and Lindsay Hill and recorded on November 7th, 2022. Thanks for listening to the Can You Hear Us Now podcast. We hope we were able to expand your mind and shed some light on this week's topic regarding African-American women in college sports. As always, we encourage you to take a closer look at the media you consume and don't be afraid to advocate for those who might not have a voice. Make sure to tune in next time when we discuss covert sexism. You can head over to our website, can you hear us now podcast.com to check out more information and resources relating to our episodes. Be sure to leave a like on this episode and subscribe to our program on platforms including Simplecast, Spotify, Audible, and iHeartRadio. See you next time. Thank you.